Shalom and welcome to A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, a trumpet call, a voice crying out loud for God to those that would hear, so that they would run to Him, that they might be warned. We are here sounding the alarm that our time here on earth is short and that we have no time to waste. Here we will expose the truth, teach the word, discuss the dangers, lies, and enemies we are surrounded by, and how to engage in the war that we are standing in the middle of. Today we are talking with our friend Pastor Gary Durham in a continued discussion on sin and salvation. Welcome to the show, Pastor Durham. Thank you, J.D. It's great to be back. We had a good discussion last time. We did, and I got a lot of feedback, so I'm excited to see where we go from here. I think today, though, we probably need to go back and talk a little bit about, kind of recap what we talked about last time, and clear up some little areas on the sin issue and kind of the nature of sin. Okay. Well, to recap, uh, let's not go too far back, because then we'd have to take the whole show to recap, (laughs) obviously. But we did point out that uh, everything starts with the triune relationship of God and love, and that love is the deepest issue in the nature of God. And if somebody wants to understand that, they can go back and listen to the program we talked that through. Mm -hmm. And that sin is a violation of the love of God, and it's a misuse of our freedom. Uh, We went on to talk about uh, several things, and we talked about the fact that we are given freedom. That's why we are made love-capable because you couldn't be love capable without freedom. And we talked about that if we were completely determined beings, God would be the only sinner in the universe because he'd be pulling all the strings and therefore he'd be responsible. So, and then we came up and talked about the distinction that sin is twofold in its nature. There is a state and the nature we inherit from Adam that has fallen and deprived and therefore depraved because we're severed from the uh, relationship with God and therefore don't have the power to live above the bondage that we have to sin. And then we talked about sin as actions, which is the second issue. And then we divided that into two things. And that is we talked about the legal definition of sin, which is the broader, which is represented kind of by harmartia in the original language. That's why we call the study of sin harmartiology. But uh, harmartia is the broader term. However, I, I want to make this clear the Bible doesn't always use uh, anomia, which is the other term, which is more specific. It means intentional, rebellious, a rebellious person who's saying, I'll do what I please. It doesn't always use anomia every time it has that in mind, because the context will often uh, show you that that's what's in mind, but it will be uh, clearly they'll use the word hamartia, because the word hamartia is both a general word, but it includes the specific. So the Bible will sometimes use it. And the context tells you what's intended. We talked about that with uh, John chapter 5, the man who was healed, and Jesus found him and said, go and sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you, and how he should have run away screaming if Jesus meant by that, don't ever via, you know, fall short of the perfect will of God ever again. And if so, if he had, uh, if Jesus had meant that, but the context makes it clear that's not what Jesus meant. He meant the anomia, what we normally consider that word to intent, and that is a willful, known, intentional violation of God's law. And, uh, and, and we can, by the grace of God, not on our own, but by the grace of God, we can do that. So Jesus was calling him to that, and therefore that was something reasonable. And we're going to see that God calls all believers to that. We are not called to be so perfect that we never, ever fall short of the absolute perfect will of God. It's not possible in this life. That will be true in heaven. 
thank God for glorification and it's on its way, but, <laughs> but not true yet. And I sometimes say to people, if you think you're that perfect, please come see me because we might be able to help you, <laughs> you know, because you definitely need some help. <laughs> right. So I think we need to talk about the difference between a temptation and a sin also. Yes. Because there's a lot of confusion amongst people that I speak to about, I'm still drawn to do this thing. Or I, I still have this great desire for my old sin. And they're confused that that itself is a sin, uh -huh. is to have this temptation over them all the time. Yeah. And you brought up several things there, actually, the way you phrased that. And we'll just have to take them kind of along the way. But the point is, is that not only is there a distinction between temptation and sin, and we'll talk about that very specifically and mm -hmm. try, try to do that up front here. But we also need to understand that uh, there is a bondage to sin that we all come into the world to. But even after a, becoming a believer, we have to fight this power of sin. But Christ has fought it for us and provided for us to overcome it. And we'll talk about what that is. And that's why believers can say, you know, I'm really, really struggling. It's not just that I'm tempted. There's something in me that agrees with the temptation constantly. And uh, we'll talk about how we are to overcome that. But let's go back to what you said. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what is the distinction between a temptation and actually sinning? Uh, and the first thing I'm going to say is that you brought up something about conscience last time, and we defined right. that, that conscience is the it's a moral capacity to detect our moral responsibility to God and to other moral beings. Uh, but that capacity has to be filled with knowledge and light, and God does that, and if the capacity is violated and seared and darkened, we can actually conscientiously do very evil things thinking it's okay. And I think we use the example of people blowing other people up and themselves up because mm -hmm. a, in a religion that is very false uh, basically seared their conscience into believing that's a good thing to do. And uh, so their conscience is not operating properly. But when we become a believer, God's light comes on us. And conscience, and here's the point of raising that again, Conscience finds the essence of sin in the realm of intent and motive. I know I've done something wrong, or I know I was supposed to do something and I didn't do it, therefore I feel guilt. And that's where conscience feels that. So let's translate that over and talk about the distinction between temptation and sin. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a kind of an interesting topic because I remember years ago I was talking with a group of college students who had come to my church, they were a singing group, and they were singing in our church, and they, and this one boy was a theology student. And so afterwards, you know, he wanted to talk theology. You know, I was a theology geek. And so he comes and he says, you know, Dr. Durham, I want to talk to you about theology. And so as, as we're talking along, uh, he said something about, I'm just really struggling in my walk with the Lord. And I said, well, he says, well, I, I just, you know, I, I'm tempted, and I know temptation is sin. And I, I went, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> I said, you think that all temptation is sin? He said, well, yeah, of course. And I said, well, who's your theology teacher? He's, she said, well, I really haven't discussed that with him. I said, well, it's not true. I said, for example, it says that Jesus was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. That's in Hebrews. And he stopped and he went, oh, that's interesting. I said, so if he could be tempted and it wasn't sin, then temptation must not be sin. And then he was like, Oh, so then he said, then his next question was, well, when does it become sin and not just a temptation? 
And I said, oh, now you've asked a really good question, and that's a good one. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to sh- answer your question by sh- using a little story that my father used to answer that question for me when I was 12 years old. Now, when I was 12 years old, believe it or not, I know this sounds really geeky, but I was a little, uh, I love theology. Uh, my mom would send me up to bed, and dad would always have all these college students over his place, and they'd be discussing theology because dad was a, a theology geek too. <laughs> and, uh, and they would all be over there discussing, and I wanted to stay and listen. I wanted to hear their, you know, talking about the impeccability of Christ and, you know, and, and soteriology and harmartiology like we're doing here. And my mom would say, no, it's time for you to go to bed. you got to go to school tomorrow. So she'd send me up the stairs. And what I would do very rebelliously, <laughs> because I wanted to listen, I'd wait till mom would kind of, you know, mom would go into the bedroom because she didn't want to be a part of the discussion. Especially. She had other things to do. She'd go in and read or something. And I would sneak down the stairs and I would sit at the bottom of the stairs and listen to everything they were talking about. And <laughs> But uh, when... Uh, when I was about 12 years old, I remember I came up against this. My conscience was bothering me about some things, and I was being tempted. I was starting to come into that place in life as a young boy. You're starting to experience sexual temptation. You're starting to experience, you know, just your things about your identity and those things. And I and I was tempted, you know, to try this and to try that because some of your friends are saying, well, you know, you ought to try this and that. And yet, you know, I'd been taught, no, those things are not good. They're wrong. Uh, and so I'm struggling and I went to my father one day and I said, dad, how do I know when I'm only being tempted or when that temptation has actually gone over into sin? And my father looked at me and said, that's a very good question, son. He says, so I'm going to answer it by telling you a story. It's going to be hypothetical, but I want you to put yourself in the story. And so here's what he told me. I call it the apple story. I actually put it in one of my little textbooks and I, I call it the apple story. And uh, the Apple story goes like this. Dad said, Gary, imagine that you're walking down the sidewalk and it's in the afternoon and it's been a while since lunch and you're starting to get a little hungry and you're thinking, man, I'm getting a little hungry and it's a couple hours till, you know, dinner time. Uh, but you notice there's a fruit stand off to the side of the sidewalk and, you're, and you see some beautiful red apples and you think, Man, I'd love to have an apple right now. That would be just perfect. But you reach in your pocket and you don't have any money. So you're going, oh, man, I'd really love to have an apple. Now, there's nothing. He says, is there anything wrong with wanting an apple, desiring an apple? I said, well, no. He said, no, that's perfectly normal. There's nothing wrong with that. You're hungry. There's an apple. You'd love to have one. He said, but let's suppose that suddenly you hear a little voice in your head, so to speak, that goes, you know, that guy's not paying much attention. I bet you could walk up, act like you're examining the fruit. When he's not looking, pick up a uh, an apple and slip it into your pocket. He'll never be the wiser, and you'll have your apple. Now, what if he says, what's happened? I said, oh, I've been tempted to steal. He says, yeah, you've been tempted to get what you want contrary to God's law. God says, don't steal. But you want an apple, and you're being tempted to just violate God's law to get what you want. And he said, so you've been tempted. He said, now, have you sinned yet? And I said, no, I haven't stolen the apple. He says, "Uh, but let me ask you this. Say now that you say to yourself, that's a really good idea. I think that's exactly what I'm going to do. He says, so you walk up to the fruit stand, 
You act like you're examining the fruit. You're waiting for the guy to look away so you can slip a nice juicy red apple in your pocket and then walk off. But this guy's already had a couple of guys steal some apples this day, and he's on to you. So he watches you like a hawk because he knows what you're up to. And after a little while, you realize, oops, he's on to me. I'm never going to get a chance to put that apple in my pocket. So you turn around and walk away and forget all about it. Not, I'm not going to steal the apple. Okay. He says, have you sinned? And, of course, my answer was, well, I didn't steal the apple. And Dad said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said I would if I could, and I intend to, but you never got the chance. He says, even though you never got the chance to actually fulfill the action, your intention was, I'm going to. And he said, the moment that you willed to commit the act, that's the moment temptation moved into sin, because sin is always at the point of the will. When you say yes to temptation— whether you ever get the chance to fulfill it or not, that is sin. That was Jesus' point when in the Sermon on the Mount, he dusted off two of the—he actually dusted off the Tenth Commandment. Everybody remember what the Tenth Commandment is? Thou shalt not covet in the old King James, you know. And we don't know what the word covet means nowadays because it's an old English word. And so people just kind of quote it, you know, it's the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. What does it mean? I ask most people, they don't have a clue. Well— it means you're not even to want to do, and then it lists all the other things like steal or violate your neighbor's wife or mm-hmm. whatever. And it just goes, it just means you're not even to want to. Well, the Pharisees recognized real quick because they had tried to turn the law into an outward form of righteousness, which it was never intended to be. It was to be a, a, the standard of God's perfection and showing us how far short we fall. So we'd run to the tabernacle and say, God, you got to do something for me, which was the sacrifices which look forward to Christ. And by faith, they could connect with Christ through those sacrifices. But they tried to turn it into a ladder of self-effort. So if I just keep these Ten Commandments and I prove to God I'm righteous, he's got to accept me. Well, that's a nice little uh, you know, plan, but it doesn't work because we're sinners. And so the only way they could make that work was two things. They had to make it totally external. It's just outward rules. And secondly, they had to ignore the tenth one because it was totally inward. It didn't say, don't do this. What it said was, just don't even want to do it. And that killed their whole program. So by the time Jesus comes and he's getting ready to preach the Sermon on the Mount, the Pharisees have added over 2,000 codicils to the first (laughs) nine commandments. They'd added nothing to the 10th one. They just ignored it because it messed up their little legalistic outward system. So (laughs) what they would do is they would, you know, if you had, you know, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. They had 250 little rules about how to keep the Sabbath day holy. If you were a tailor caught carrying a needle on your person, you were carrying an instrument of labor. Therefore, you had violated the Sabbath. And so they were very picky, 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 picky. And so they got, you know, hyper uh, legalistic about all these outward things because they're trying to prove to God they're righteous. Look how righteous we are. We're, we've, you know, you gave us nine of these commands here. We've turned them into, you know, 2,000. So look how hard we're trying. And Jesus didn't even focus on any of that. He, in fact, he condemned him for that later. But what he did was is dust off the tenth one and go, let's apply it because the tenth one applies to all the other nine. So he says, uh, you ever murdered anybody? And, oh, no, 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 no. We've never stabbed anybody and murdered them. He says, but do you hate your brother in your heart? Uh, well, uh, yeah, there's a few people I'd like to see eliminated. 
And Jesus says, well, if you hate your brother in your heart and you'd like to see them, you're guilty of murder, even though you've never actually done the act. Same thing with lust. He said, and in the word there, lust is a negative term, and it means to have consented to evil desire. So in other words, it doesn't mean you just saw a beautiful woman and recognized her beauty and been attracted to her. There's nothing wrong with that. But you, it means that you said to yourself, oh, I would love to have sex with her. And if I got the opportunity, I would do it. And the moment you consent and say, I would do it if I got the opportunity, even though I wouldn't do it within the laws of God or I might be violating her because she's somebody else's wife, he says, the moment you consent to that, you are guilty of adultery. And, he, and the word he uses there for, uh, you know, to look at a woman actually is for the word wife. So it means she's a consecrated woman. She belongs to somebody else. She's off limits. So you've committed adultery, not just fornication, adultery, mm-hmm. because you have said, I would if I could. You may never get the opportunity, but God says you're still guilty because you had the intention. Well, man, I tell you, that is an absolutely perfect explanation, I think. And I want to bring this up because I have a couple online men's groups that I sit in on and Mm -hmm. and I try to help people. And culturally right now, we have this gender dysphoria and the LGBTQ movement and all these things going on that are causing a lot of stir. Yes. A lot of questions. Yes, it's tragic. It actually is. And in these men's groups, and they're like like men of God, and and they're Christian groups. Right. There's questions about how they accept homosexuals in, and ask how we explain Jesus loving homosexuals, or what part of homosexuality is a sin. Yes. And what I've been telling, and and it lines up like, well, you just explained, but I'd like for you to say it too, so other people will hear this. (laughs) If you are attracted to someone of the same sex— attracted, right? is that a sin? Short answer. No, not necessarily. If you are attracted and you see somebody of the same sex that you really are attracted to and you start thinking about what you'd like to do with that person, is that a sin? That's on the border because it depends on if you're thinking about it and using imagination to try to get some kind of sense of fulfilling actually doing it, you're kind of consenting to, I'd, I'd like to do that with this person. So if It's you, right on the border. If you're attracted to the same sex and you m- try to come up with a plan how to have sex with somebody, yeah. is that a sin? Yes, because you've consented to doing something you know God says the homosexual is not inherit the kingdom of God. And so it is therefore something that God considers sin. Now, your question, though, is how should we respond to homosexuals? Well, I got one more. Okay. I, get, I want to get this one in so there's no doubt I've covered them all. Okay. If you're attracted to to people of the same sex and you have sex with another person of the same sex, is that a sin? Yes. All right. We've we've covered all those questions now. Yeah. But it's no different than if some, you know, for example, if I'm heterosexual Mm -hmm. and when I was a single person, if I had was attracted to a beautiful young lady and I said, ah, I'd like to violate her. I'd like to have sex with her. Uh, If I intended to do that and tried to do it but could never get the opportunity, I've still sinned. But if I did have sexual relations with her, that was sin. And it's no different because sin is sin. So whether it's heterosexual sin or homosexual sin, it's sin. Now, the difference being with homosexual sin is that the Scripture considers that to be a distortion of God's design in a little further way fornication is a distortion of God's design, so is adultery. God never intended for that to happen. 
It sex is to happen between one man, one woman inside of marriage. But there's a further distortion in homosexual relationships because it completely breaks God's obvious. I mean, you can just look at nature. Yeah, the design flaw. Yeah, even if I was an evolutionist, and I never, I never say this because it, it would seem cruel, but we can talk about it abstractly here. Even if I was an evolutionist and said, you know, I believe in the survival of the fittest, mm-hmm. uh, then I have often said to, I, I, I've said this to academic evolutionists when we were discussing it objectively, uh, then you would say that a homosexual has been selected for extinction because they must not be fit to survive because they have no desire for regular heterosexual relationships, which would pass on their genetic right. material and therefore cause them to continue to be part of the species. And they go, oh, I said, well, that's what evolution means. If you really believe what you're saying, they've been selected for extinction. And, uh, and of course, they immediately start backpedaling. Now, of course, we should not believe that because that's not true. <laughs> right, right. You know. And the other thing is there seems to be some people that are so staunchly against homosexuality and willing to argue against it continuously. And I don't understand the need to continuously argue the point that you don't understand. This is an abomination to God. I said, well, all sin is an abomination all to God. All sin is an abomination to God. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out, but it's not new news, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, and I think in your your further question that up front there, you said, well, how are we to respond to the homosexual? The Bible's very clear. Love them. Love them. Love them. But we also have to insist on the biblical definition of love. Now, for example, when I was the executive director of Freedom Ministries International for many years, we trained counselors, and I often did a lot of counseling, and I counseled people who were dealing with identity dysphoria sexually and homosexuals. And they would often come in in the standard line, at least back then, you understand this was in the the 80s, but the standard line back then is they would come in and say, well, if you don't approve of my lifestyle, you do not love me. And I would say to them, wait a minute, you don't get to define love in here. (laughs) No, no, that's not my definition of love. In fact, and then I would say to them, if I had a child who was three years old and there was a rattlesnake in front of them and they wanted to pet it and play with it. Would I say, well, if because that's what you want to do, it's okay, sweetie, go ahead and play with the rattlesnake. Would I? Would that be loving? And of course, if they're honest, they go, well, no. Obviously, that snake is dangerous. And I said, exactly. And that's why I'm going to say to you, your lifestyle is dangerous, and I believe it's killing your soul. And I believe that God has a way to bring you to freedom. And therefore, I'm not going to sit here and say I that. To love you, I have to approve of the choices you're making when I think they're disastrous Cause I, because I love you. I'm going to tell you otherwise. I'm going to say don't do this because it's going to destroy you eternally. And I agree with that. There is another portion of this that caused a lot of confusion, I think, on both sides. I think in the homosexual community and in the straight community, you could have two people of the same sex love each other. Mm-hmm. Yes. Never have sex. Never be lustful towards each other love each other. Yes. And that's not sinful. No, that's not sinful. And in fact, I've had to, I've dealt with homosexuals who are believers who live a celibate lifestyle because they have no desire for normal marriage. 
Mm-hmm. But they live a celibate lifestyle, and they believe that's what they're called to, and they accept God's grace for that. There's often struggle. They're tempted just like anybody, like heterosexuals are. Mm-hmm. I'm a married man, love my wife dearly. I think she's the greatest woman on planet Earth. But it doesn't mean that a beautiful woman cannot attract me physically. And I constantly, by the grace of God, say no to all other relationships, even if there's a temptation there. Mm-hmm. And I've been flirted with. I mean, I, I, I told somebody I've actually been propositioned in my office. But the point is the, the counseling session ended. It's over with. You know? right. But the point is, is that we've got to realize that just being tempted is not sin. And so there may be someone who, and, and here we, can, we may not be able to unpack this all today. There are reasons why people have homosexual Tendencies. Now, yes, yes. and Jesus even confessed that some are eunuchs at birth, and there he could be referring to a physical malady, or he could be referring just to the fact they have no desire for marriage and normal sexual relations. And he pointed to chastity for those people. And he said some are made eunuchs by men, which was a very sad kind of, uh, you know, part of that culture where Mm -hmm. they would take slaves Often they would castrate the males, especially if they wanted them to be in charge of the women. That way the master didn't have to worry about them violating the women of the household, so to speak. Uh, But the point is, is that Jesus pointed those people to chastity. And then he said, and and if people can accept that, fine. He didn't make chastity a, a requirement for Christians. He said those who can accept it should accept it. And then he pointed to that, but those who have normal desires and want to marry... And they should they should do that, and Paul points that out too. Yeah, I just thought it was important for us to point out that the act of loving someone is not a sin, and I think there's great confusion on both sides of this aisle. One, that I think the LGBTQ community believes that Christians want to control who they can love. Yeah, which is nowhere near the case, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, in fact, let me go a little further and just say back to that concept of defining love. They don't get to define love. I don't get to define love. God defines it. And love means, when you boil it down in Scripture, especially the love of God, agape, which every believer is supposed to be controlled by, and that controls our human loves, which is, of course, our eros, which is sexual love and and the love between the sexes, and then you know, philios, which is friendship love, and then there is storge, family love, or the love of the familiar. Uh, for the believer, divine love, which we only get through the Holy Spirit, controls all those and helps them to live up to their full potential. Otherwise, they can all go bad, as C.S. Lewis so eloquently pointed out in his book on the four loves, that We've seen all human loves go bad. We've seen mothers kill their children. We've seen friends turn on each other, you know, and we've seen, you know, people madly in love with each other turn around and, and betray each other. The point is, but agape, when, when, for example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, you know, people read at the weddings all the time, 1 Corinthians 13, and love never fails. The problem is they don't realize it's saying agape never fails. It doesn't say eros never fails. <laughs> We've seen it fail a lot. I've right. done, most of my counseling's been done because eros failed and, and so on. Uh, but the point is, is that when we define love correctly, and the, like I said, the homosexual doesn't get to define it. I don't get to define it. God defines it. Mm-hmm. And so when the homosexual says, well, is it wrong for me to love someone? No. But if you love someone, love sa- asks the next question. What is best for the person I love? Well, God says it's best that you don't violate each other. It's best that you don't corrupt each other. It's best that you don't sin against my design. 
and it's best that you don't make yourself a slave to sin. Therefore, you don't want to corrupt them. So if you love them, you want what's best for them. I use that argument in premarital counseling with couples all the time because I say to them, if you really love each other, you will want to keep each other pure until marriage because when you violate each other and say, oh, it's okay, we're getting ready to get married, you violate trust because what you're saying is the rules don't matter now and what's going to happen afterwards, you're going to find out that after you're married, you're still tempted and couples are still tempted. They're still possibly tempted. And if the rules didn't matter before marriage, you know that if they were motivated enough, they were willing to break the rules. Now the, the suspicion arises. Mm-hmm. Are they motivated enough through this temptation to break the rules? Like and so we've, dis, we've destroyed the ground of trust. Love cannot grow in the ground of suspicion. And mm-hmm. that's what creates a lot of dysfunction. So if a homosexual says, I love this person, then they should want, by God's grace— to keep the relationship such that they do not in any way corrupt or pollute or defile that person. And so when we come to that, then, yeah, it's okay to love that person uh, mm-hmm. if you understand that biblically. Yeah, and it's a good point you made with the heterosexual as well. Yes. And because the picture of that marriage is very much the picture that we talked about with the separation of man from God. Yes. Where that suspicion comes in. Mm-hmm. And you brought it in because you broke trust beforehand. That's right. And and when you break trust, then you destroy the soil in which love grows. Love Mm -hmm. cannot grow where there is not trust. So another question that I've had posed is, are all sins equal to God? All sins are deadly if they're not repented of, but not all sins are equal. The Bible makes that clear. For example, we mentioned last time, we just kind of touched on it and went on, We and we can't go into it in depth today, but in 1 John chapter 5, John talks about there is sin that does not lead to death, and he's talking about spiritual death. Hmm. There is sin that does not lead to death, and if you see a believer commit that kind of sin, pray for them because God will give them life. In other words, just pray grace on that believer because it's possible for them to just, you know, and just cover that over with grace. In other words, somebody says something to you that, you know, really hurts you, but, you know, they didn't really intend it. You just realize that they're Maybe they're not too bright, didn't realize what they said, whatever. But he says, just pour grace on that. Don't worry about it. But he says, there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying you should pray about that. Why does he say that? He's saying that's the kind of thing that's intentional. They're clearly rebelling against God. He said, and what he's saying is they have to take care of that themselves. You can't pray for them and get that taken care of. you got to do it yourself. they got to do it themselves. they got to go to God and repent and say, God— I blew it. I'm sorry, because that leads to severing a relationship with God. And it doesn't matter whether you think people can lose their salvation or not. The point is, if they are severing themselves in that kind of rebellion, some will say, well, they just never were a true Christian. That might be true. Others will say, well, they lost their salvation. Well, if you believe apostasy is possible, that might be true. But the point is that they're obviously not a Christian right now, and we can agree on that, because obviously they're living in open defiance to God. All right. That leads me. I'm almost afraid to ask the next question because <laughs> of time wise, because you said something important here, because you were making a discernment mm-hmm. in that statement, right? Between the one that we pray for and the one that John says not to pray for, right? Well, he doesn't say not to pray for him. He says, don't pray for that sin. In other words, you can't forgive that sin. They right, have right. to do that themselves. They have but to repent. That's a discernment. Yes. Or in another term that we hear a lot, and people really are beating each other up in Christian venues over this, 
is thou shalt not judge. <laughs> and I love how they shorten that, that verse. I love how they, they shorten that to fit their don't judge me. Yeah. And they completely leave off the back part of it that says no judge out of love. And, you know, if you see a brother stumble, then take him aside and talk to him. I mean, they don't talk about any of these parts of it. Mm-hmm. Just don't judge. Yeah, well, you you touched on something really huge. And, and I, I don't want to get into all of that today, yeah. but maybe we'll just do a tiny, tiny yeah, bit. The last time I preached on this issue, uh, it took 14 weeks. So you don't, <laughs> you don't want me to you don't want me to start on doing that, okay? No. But, but, but we can touch on it, you know, just on the surface yeah. here. And it goes back first to this. We do not judge, but we do allow God to judge. He is the judge. And when God has spoken clearly in his word, for example, I used to say to heterosexuals and homosexuals that I was counseling when God says, don't, you know, don't commit fornication or, you know, don't commit the corruption of homosexual sin. They would say, well, you're judging me. I said, no, I'm not. That's God's judgment. I'm simply delivering the message. And I didn't make up this judgment. This is God's judgment. And he has the right to judge. He created you. He designed you. He knows what's best for you. Therefore, as a minister, I stand in the pulpit all the time and deliver the judgments of God. I try to do it in love. I always try to make sure I'm doing it in love. But the point is, I don't have the right to say, well, some people might take that as judgmental, so I'm not going to talk about sin. No, God says you better talk about sin if you love them, because sin's going to destroy them eternally. They need to know. So it's <laughs> it's important to, uh, you know, to, to, as we touch on this this concept of I kind of lost my train of thought there for a moment. <laughs> uh, we were talking about, uh, what was your question? Judgment. Judgment, yeah. Judgment. It's important when we talk about judgment to make a distinction between our judgments, where we decide that they've done something bad and we got the right to judge them. We've got the right to assess whether or not this is mortal or this is something or they're not a Christian, or whether or not we have to leave it with God in some case. For example, I don't always know another person's heart. And, for example, someone may do something that just looks blatant to me, and then I find out later they were completely ignorant. And therefore, while it is a sin of missing the perfect will of God, uh, there was no intention. And we'll talk later about the deep, more deeply about sins of intention versus uh, mistakes and so on. And, and why God judges so differently. And that goes back to your question, are all sins equal? Uh, for example, a, a mistake can be a sin in the broadest sense of the word, legal term, because it misses the perfect will of God. But do we count it the same as an intentional? And uh, and maybe I'll just touch on that right here, if, you, if that's okay with you, J.D. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, for example, let's use a, an illustration. Let's suppose that someone's driving down the interstate— uh, with, uh, you know, in their car, and uh, they make a terrible misjudgment, but it, there's no recklessness involved, but they make a terrible misjudgment, and they hit a car with a family in it, and there is a terrible accident, and the whole family is killed. Now, this person survives, but knowing all the, the you know, what happened, we can clearly see it's just a, a terrible you know, point of mistake in judgment. They, it was, you know, wasn't intentional. They weren't being reckless. It was just something that happened. It might even, you know, and so we're not going to try to prosecute that person for manslaughter if it, or even murder because we know there's no intention involved. It was human error. 
However, let's suppose that we take that same scenario and this person gets on the interstate. He's looking for this family because he's got a grudge against maybe the father or the husband. And he, when he finds them, he uses his car to try to run them off the road and a terrible accident happens and the family is killed. If we know those facts, do we treat this case differently than we do in the first case? Obviously. Why? Because human courts determine guilt on the basis of intention. So if I intended to destroy that family, then I'm guilty of murder and I would be prosecuted for it. But if I, it was simply an accident. Now, in both cases, the outcome's the same. The family's dead. Mm-hmm. See, there, it's both serious. So accidents are not just, you know, un, unconsequential. They're important. And we should, of course, try to avoid mistakes as much as possible, especially ones that might harm other people. But the point is, is that it's not created the same. If court, human courts can make that distinction, and it's such an important distinction, because we would really be upset knowing that every time an accident happened, somebody was prosecuted for murder or something, if somebody died, uh, we would say, that's not fair. That's not right, because there was no intention. They didn't intend to hurt anyone, and it was just an accident. So we make that distinction. So where do we learn that distinction? We learned it from God. God makes that same distinction, and that's what's so important. Yeah, and I think people a lot of times get confused with someone pointing out a sinful act as judging. Yes. No, but the Bible says what you are doing is a sin. Well, for example, in Matthew 18, Jesus says, if you see your brother sin, or he sins against you, literally is what mm-hmm. he says, which puts you in the perfect case to know that he sinned because you're the victim of that sin. Right. Okay. He says, now you've incurred a responsibility to your brother. Now, that's that's just blows most people away. When I would preach, when I preach that... If somebody sins against you, you just incurred a responsibility to them. Oh, no, no, they sinned against me. They, they've got a responsibility to come and apologize to me. No, Jesus says if they're your brother or sister, you've incurred a responsibility to them. Go and show them their fault. And the word fault there is interesting. It means, uh, if I can kind of just use an expanded translation here, it means go show them the chink in their armor, their weak spot. Okay, because they may have, this may have been intentional or not intentional, but go and show them what you did was not good. What you did is sinful and show them their fault. And he says, if they listen to you, you have won your brother or sister over. Now, what's interesting, the term there in the Greek used for won them over literally is the term used for rescuing spoils of war and taking them back. So what he's saying is the enemy either through ignorance or through maybe temptation, overcame your brother or sister, and they did something they shouldn't do, and he's controlling them, but but you're saying, no, they belong to us. We're going to take them back as spoils of war. They're, they belong to us. So I go not to say to him, look what you did to me. No, I go to say, I'm concerned about your soul. Uh, did you do this intentionally? If you did, you need to repent. If it was an accident, you need to take responsibility for it. And then you need to be instructed and, and aware not to do that again because that's, that's harmful. You know, you sinned against me and I forgive you. But the point is Jesus is saying you have a responsibility to help your brother or sister get that right. And you're not going to let them be spoils to the enemy. You're going to say, no, enemy, you can't have them. They belong to us. And when he says brothers, he's specifically talking about fellow believers. Yes, 
Very so specifically. If you are going out into the world and non-believers, <laughs> then that's a whole different conversation. You're not in covenant relationship with non-believers. And so your responsibility to them, there is a responsibility to them because we're all human beings created the image of God, but it is not the same responsibility you have to a brother or sister. Right. I can confront a brother or sister because I care about them and we are in a common covenant a common covenant relationship where we both say we have given God permission to rule our lives and we also and this is what most believers in modern culture do not get. We've given permission in the church to be confronted with truth. That's what preaching is, that's what discipleship is, that's what counseling is. And every believer should consider that one of their greatest privileges. Right. Because it, it, the only way you can say, I don't need that, is if you think you're perfect. And like I said, if you think you're perfect, come see me. I might be able to help you, you know, because you got a problem. But the point is, if you're not perfect, then there may be times you need a brother or sister to come to you and go, you need to get this right. That's not good. And you hope they come in love. You hope they come with the right attitude, and that makes it so much easier to repent. You go, oh, yeah, man, you're right. I was so wrong, and, you, and you're able to repent. But I've had them come and point out a flaw and do it in a bad attitude, and I remember that happened once when I was a young pastor, and a guy who was a big problem in the church came and told me that I was doing something wrong, and uh, he nailed me. He was dead on. I was handling it wrong. And my thinking was, well, I've got 10 things on my list I need to talk to you about. And God told me, keep your list in your the drawer of your office, and this is not the time. And I said, but, but you let this guy who's, this, you know, he's got all these problems, and he's got these bad attitudes, and you let him come and nail me to the wall. And God said, what do you do with truth? What do you do with truth? And I, all I could hear was, well, if it's true, you repent, you conform to it. And so I had to say to him, forgive me, you're right, I've been doing it wrong, and I will change. After I did that, in my stubborn little way as a young pastor, I said to the Lord, can I confront him now? He said, no, pray, thinking for his confrontation, and let him leave. I can't tell you the rest of the story, but months later, when his family went through a crisis, I was able to deal with him and help him see that that crisis was a result of his bad attitudes and sins, and he came to repentance. And what he said to me as I pointed out to him what needed to take place in his life, he looked at me and he said, Pastor, remember when I confronted you about such and such, and uh, you said you would change? I said, yeah, I'll never forget it. And I'm proving that right now because that was about, that was many years ago. <laughs> and and uh, he said, well, I saw you repent and I saw you change. And if you can, I can. I didn't realize at that moment I was earning the right to be able to deal with him about a deeper issue in his life that he would never have listened to me about, except now I had earned the right to do that because I was willing to be confronted. Awesome. That's all I got to say about that. that that's, <laughs> that's just a beautiful picture of how that works. And how reality. it should work yeah. in the church. Yeah. So that leads us up to, I think, probably going to be our last question for the day. And that is, what are the consequences of sin? Oh, the consequences, according to Paul, as you know, the wages of sin is death. Uh, and here's where we haven't gotten back to this idea of sin as nature and sin as action and how believers still struggle with sin. So, for example, uh, I think you talked about last time, Paul in Romans 6 talks a lot about the fact that, you know, 
can we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And then he goes meganoite in the Greek, which is a very strong negative. It's hard to even translate it. It means perish the thought. How dare anybody think something so ridiculous would be a nice expanded translation of that. He's just going, that's just out of court completely. And then he goes on to say, but you died to the sin. And in the Greek, there's the particular article every time there. It's in the singular. It means you died to the power of sin, this nature that you were born with. You died to that. You're no longer that person. And he says later, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ. That old. So he's not talking about sin as action. He's talking about sin as this nature in us that we inherited, this that exerts power over us. And Paul makes it clear we're no longer to be slaves to the sin nature. Again, the particular article is always there, but we are to be slaves to Christ instead. So what do we do? We die to that old self we were, and we come alive to a new self. The problem with many believers, as I pointed out last time, they have believed for forgiveness. They have believed to become a new creation in Christ, but they have not believed the rest of the gospel, which is that he put you to death as the old person that's a slave to sin, and he's brought you to life and resurrected you. You're already a resurrected person in spirit. You haven't got your resurrected body yet, but you're already resurrected in spirit. You're a resurrected person. And therefore, you are a new creation. That's why Paul said you've been united with him in his death. You'll also be united with him in his resurrection. And he's done this so that you can walk in newness of life now. So if we can walk in newness of life now, it's because we're not slaves to sin. But you have to appropriate that by faith. Uh, I think I pointed out this last Sunday in a sermon that the same way Jesus died for you 2,000 years ago and, and provided everything you need, but none of it came online and benefited you till you, by faith, believed it, accepted it, and the Holy Spirit, of course, had to be involved in that happening. But when you believed it and accepted it, it actualized in you. In other words, your sins got actually forgiven. Your name got actually written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your spirit was actually regenerated and you were brought to life. You became a child of God. But Jesus also provided not just for that. He provided for you to die to what you were and come alive as a new person. And that's what happens in the sanctifying process that follows our salvation, and that often becomes like a second crisis for most people. In fact, there are those in the Wesley movement talk about it and say it's all everybody has to have that second crisis. Uh, the point is, though, that it's like a second crisis for many people because they become a Christian and then they're still struggling with temptation and with this power of sin, and they're still a slave to it. That's Romans seven, where Paul says, "I don't want to do the good, but I keep." You know, I, I want to do the good, but I can't. Don't want to do the evil, but I do. And I wish we had time. If you're saying we don't have time, we won't go into Romans 7 and 8. But Next time. Yeah, but the point is, is that in Romans 7, Paul is talking about, he says, and I pointed this out last time, it is no longer I. That means once it was I. Before I was converted, it was I. I was out there just doing my own thing. But it's no longer I. He says it's the sin. The Greek has a particular article. It is the sin living in me that's doing it. And so the point is, he goes on to say, so it, the problem here, and twice in that chapter, he says, except verse 17, verse 20, it's no longer I, but it's the sin living in me that does it. And then he, at the end of that chapter, he cries out, who can deliver me from this body of death? Now, we so mistranslate that. People think that's referring to the physical body or this 
body subject to death, as some translations will translate. That's not what Paul had in mind at all. Paul is using a metaphor that was common, and the Romans understood it immediately. And and if I have time here can, to get this in, I'll explain this metaphor, do we? Okay. All right. This metaphor was simply this, that the Romans had several punishments for murder, obviously. Mm-hmm. One of them was to take a person, particularly one they wanted to make a public example of, if they murdered a Roman sentry, for example, one of the punishments could be they would take them and they would chain them and bind them hand to hand, limb to limb, face to face with a corpse. And as that corpse rotted and decayed, and they would put this person often in public places and hang them up while this happened, that corpse would begin to eat into their flesh and they would get gangrene and ultimately they would die after many days of long, painful, odious (laughs) situation. And they died because they were bound and chained to a dead thing that was eating the life out of them. And this was such a graphically horrifying thing to see that it actually entered into the language of the day as a kind of a metaphor, a kind of word picture. And so they would say to, if they had a problem that they just couldn't solve, they couldn't get rid of, I've been trying to get rid of it, I can't get rid of it, they'd say, it's like a body of death to me. It's like a body of death to me. And what that meant was, if I can't get rid of this, it's going to get rid of me. It's it's destroying me. Mm. And so Paul uses that metaphor and says, this power of sin that's controlling you, if you don't get victory over this and get free from it and get the chains cut, it's going to destroy you because you you need to be free from this. And he cries out, who can deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Then we have the beautiful spirit-filled chapter of Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not live according to their sinful nature, but according to the spirit. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by our sinful nature, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned the sin, he's talking back to that nature again, in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in those who do not live according to their sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And then he goes on to talk about having the mind of the Spirit versus the mind of the sinful nature in the flesh, and that one is death and the other's life. Well, that was a great lead into uh, my exit, I guess, for today. Okay. Because what we'll do next, we'll have to do next time is, is we're going to talk about what God's response to sin was. I think we've covered sin pretty well. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to move next into what God has done in response to sin. Yeah, what does salvation look like because Mm -hmm. of what the ramifications of sin are? God deals with sin as actions, which we need forgiveness and pardon for, and uh, we need freedom from the guilt of. But he also deals with sin as a power and a nature, and he puts that to death in Christ so that we can walk out with a new nature. So salvation doesn't just cover one. Sin is twofold in nature. Redemption is twofold in nature. Mm -hmm. And too many believers stop at the first part and don't go on and by faith appropriate and actualize the next part. Well, we will definitely get into that uh, in our next episode. All right. I'd like to thank you very much for coming by today and talking to us. Your teaching is always enlightening, and and I love the detail that you get into for our listeners. So thank you very much. my, My privilege, J.D., So this has been a Veritas Resurgence broadcast, and today on A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, we have been talking about sin, and we haven't got to salvation yet, but we will get there, I promise.
But please take a moment and subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to visit our website at vrbroadcast.org, where you can find more teaching and ask questions of the show and our guests. Also find us on the Facebook at A Voice Calling in the Wilderness. And if you want to hear more messages from Pastor Durham, you can find him at pcnh.church. And do us a favor, recommend the podcast to your friends and family. Again, thank you for listening and have a blessed day.